Morning, Glory, and even Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the last hour of the radio week. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, that hour of the week that I spend with Dr. Larion, president of Hillsdale College. And one of his colleagues this week, Professor Grant, Dr. Grant, teaches politics at Hillsdale College. He got his B.A. from Reagan's College, Eureka College, his M.A. and his Ph.D. from the University of Dallas. He has been here before to opine on Cicero, and he is back to help us do something unusual that we haven't done before in the two years of the Hillsdale Dialogues that they have been running. And all of those are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com, or you can go to all of the courses that Hillsdale has at hillsdale.edu. It is an encore of sorts after four weeks of Thomas Aquinas that many of you have sent us letters about saying thank you that you had been afraid as I was of Aquinas and that Dr. Arn and Professor Cole had helped you get over that fear. We thought you needed more. And so we got an encore and we have Professor Grant who is teaching Aquinas as we speak at Hillsdale College to come and join us. Professor Grant, welcome back and tell people what you are teaching and why this why this segment is different from the four that we did before, our focus. Well, I am teaching a courses on medieval political philosophy to both undergraduate and graduate students here, two separate courses, and uh, we're doing most of the course on Aquinas in both classes because of, um, partly because of his natural law doctrine, which is we're going to be talking about today, which is a tremendous of tremendous importance, and uh, also because of his take on the relationship between faith and reason, which is um, related to his natural law teaching and important for all thinking human beings to uh, wrestle with. Now, Larry Arndt, you in particular wanted to make sure that we spent some specific time on the natural law, specifically the second part of the first uh, part and the questions 90 through 94 that deal with his treaties on natural law. Why? What, why do you think it's so important to make sure that our audience hears it? Well, you know, I gather you that George Will has just said that you're a brilliant interviewer and you're and you're all puffed up about it. And you have just asked me the perfect question, and I'm prepared to answer it. Okay. The, uh, uh, I'm teaching this week the Constitution course. I'm teaching this semester the Constitution course, and we're toward the end of the term now, and so we're dealing with the progressives. And I'm going to read to you from one of them. This man is Frank Goodnow, and he was one of the founders of the American Political Science Association. He was a colleague of John Dewey at Columbia, and then he was president of Johns Hopkins. And he's one of the people who invented the kind of politics we live under today. This is from his essay, The American Conception of Liberty. The end of the 18th century, he writes, was marked by the formulation and general acceptance by thinking men in Europe of a political philosophy which laid great emphasis on individual private rights. Now, ellipsis, and go down a paragraph, While there was no justification, in fact, for this social contract theory and this doctrine of natural rights, their acceptance by thinking men did lay the ground, and then he goes on to say, for our new kind of liberalism, which is not grounded in any understanding of nature or right or anything prior to human thinking. Wow. That and that that is the progressive era right there. The conception in the Declaration of Independence that there are laws of nature and of nature's God, that you are a kind of being with inalienable rights, that any interference with those rights is always wrong, that is the thing that has been rejected. Good now has really cast off and, and were people aware of it at the time how radical that is? It, it, it presents itself because, of course, at this time, early 
in the progressive era. When he's writing this, this is 1916, and and uh, and so it's an academic thing, right? And I it's, since we're since I mentioned that John and I are both teaching, of course, this term. Let, let me read you this thing too, because it's it's really crazy. He says, uh, "I got to find it." We teachers, perhaps, take ourselves too seriously at times. That I am willing to admit. We may not have nearly the influence that we think we have. Changes in economic conditions for which we are in no way responsible bring in their train, regardless of what we teach, changes in beliefs and opinions. In other words, the sacred experience you have in the classroom, studying great and beautiful things that elevate the soul with students, is nothing to this man, because the human understanding is contingent on the circumstances around it. So the reason there's no human freedom in nature is that there's no human independence from necessity in nature. And that's what gets swept away, right? I mean, Barack Obama wrote in The Audacity of Hope, before he was elected president of the United States, implicit in the Constitution structures, as a quote, in the very idea of ordered liberty is a rejection of absolute truth. Yeah. Well, now, now, I want to ask Dr. Grant, if, if you've just heard Mr. Goodnow, Professor Goodnow, write that, and we mm-hmm. turn to question 94 in the first part of the second part, and people will understand that from our previous conversations, he poses six questions, Aquinas does. What is the natural law? What are the precepts of the natural law? Whether all acts of virtue are prescribed by the natural law? Whether the natural law is the same in all? Whether it is changeable? whether it can be abolished from the heart of man. And Goodnow would say, of course, those are all silly questions, wouldn't he? That's exactly right. He would, Goodnow and the progressives in general all denied that you could understand human nature apart from the society in which you find it. So uh, Dewey says in, a, in a John Dewey in a book called Liberalism and Social Action that society is that in which man moves and lives and has his being. And he's taking that from Acts 17, replacing God with society. Society makes us and you can't understand human nature or, or uh, natural law. Uh, you know, moral precepts apart from that, those current social circumstances. So, so what did those people of 100 years ago think of those people of 800 years ago? I mean, what would, what would Goodnow or Dewey, I don't want to bring Wilson because that clutters it up with our image of him, but the pure progressive intellectual, think of his vast output and his work on the natural law, just an aberration of monks caught in a cell of cells? Well, Dewey, would, Dewey said people like Aquinas or Locke later, another natural law thinker, didn't understand historical relativity, that they thought that you could find a truth apart from uh, the current context in which you find yourself, historical context, and that was their great error. And now we supposedly know better. And, and Larry, Arndt, this seems to me to be the question. Why did they feel entitled to break with the past? What was it that they thought they had that people as prodigious in output, as magnificent and obviously so a thinker as Aquinas, could not keep them leashed? That's it. Uh, So radicalize the statement just a little bit. Um, If everything is governed by your historical context, what is the independence of my own thought? What is the value of the propositions that I put forward? Why am I able to pronounce? And the answer is uh, 
the way Hegel puts the point is, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. At the end of history, we become better able to see. And what we see is that history, that events, that circumstances are all. And by the way, since a science has been born that lets us perceive that truth, we can now use that science to get command of history. We can become an engineering project to remake the society. And just to repeat, the reason I think it's so important to dwell on the question of the law and the political understanding of Thomas Aquinas is because it is such an answer, you know, from, you know, what, 800 years, no, what, how many, 500 years before the founding. It is such an answer to this relativism that, first of all, deprives people of some standard by which to judge, but second, because it turns into this engineering project, permits the government, I mean, it is everywhere and it is growing, and the, and the realm of private liberty is shrinking all the time, and you can see the idea of an independent private liberty specifically rejected in the, in, the, in the words of the founder of the American Political Science Association. And with one minute to the break, uh, Professor Grant, what would the founders have said of Aquinas' understanding of natural law as opposed to the progressives? They were in broad agreement with, the, with the, at least the general idea that you can understand right and wrong, natural law, moral guidance, apart from your particular historical context. So they had disagreements in some particular matters, but in general, they were in agreement with that. That was key to their understanding. When we come back from break, we continue to talk about why the natural law mattered to Thomas Aquinas, why it mattered to our founders, and why it was actually essential for the progressives to throw it overboard, why they had to to jettison it to begin their science project that became the 20th century. The science project gone horribly, terribly awry as we enter its 14th year of its second century. Don't go anywhere, America. Uh, It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, except over to hillsdale.edu, where you'll find all of our previous dialogues, or at qforhillsdale.com. 21 minutes after the Our America, Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. His colleague, Professor John Grant, teaches politics there. Specifically, he teaches Aquinas. And we were talking about the natural law today, Aquinas' theory of the natural law. And we were talking about how the progressives absolutely rejected it and said, no, we are beginning anew. And uh, Professor Arn, Dr. Arn, I want to go back to something that Stephen Breyer said on this show a few years ago, that people certainly can criticize and pay attention to the court in general. Of course, they can criticize, but there are different approaches to these very grand problems, very different. And I think, for example, originalism doesn't work very well, Justice Breyer says. I think it's pretty hard. I don't think George Washington knew about the Internet. I think our basic job here at the court, and I paraphrase there, is to take the values in the Constitution, which don't change. They're virtually the same that they now in the 18th century. They're the values of the Enlightenment and apply them to today's world, which changes every five minutes. I mean, yes, George Washington didn't know about the Internet, nor did James Madison know about television, etc. And the world keeps changing. So what do you say to that? Well, um, first of all, A good question to ask him would be, what about these values, and which ones are they that don't change, and how do you account for their not changing? Because right now, everything is changing, right? I mean, we're redefining the family. 
where it 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 you know we there is a change in these progressive writings on how we understand human freedom and the idea you know john dewey uh, john quoted him john grant quoted him he he specifically states that you get your rights from your social context and that means if your social context changes then you don't have the same rights anymore and you know he's writing before 1937 and 1938 in Hitler's Germany when those changes got really radical the question for Stephen Breyer is on what ground do you repudiate that Interesting. And he does repudiate it, by the way, but how does yeah. he? Now, question 94 has, it has those six questions within it, Professor Grant. One of it is, is the natural law changeable? I think Justice Breyer, like the progressives, says there isn't a natural law, so the question is out of order, right? Yes, that's exactly right. All right, so would you take us back to, to how Aquinas originally answers? What is the natural law before we talk about whether or not it can be changed? Yeah, for Aquinas, the natural law is what we can know about how we should act, our moral actions, with our unassisted human reason. And we can know that by looking at our inclinations. And if we think about those inclinations, so say our inclination to preserve ourselves is the first inclination um, we know about, uh, or our inclination to live in society with others. If we think about how to make those inclinations good for us, then you get the content of the natural law. Now, Dr. Arn, he added, make those inclinations good for us. What about those inclinations which aren't good for us to to uh, you know, chase after everyone that we wish to bed, to drink as much as we wish to drink, to eat as much as we wish to eat, or to, to rule all that we can see? What about those inclinations? Well, then you, you have to be able to distinguish better and worse, and the way you go about that is pretty simple. You can look at each kind of being, and, and that, that means inanimate beings too, and you can see what is, it, what is it about them that makes them what they are. What is their nature? So look at human beings, and you can see cowards and liars and gluttons and wantons. They, they are not living in a way that is good for the human being. The human being doesn't thrive under those conditions. And so it's not being like the thing it is. That's why if, if you read uh, Othello, where you know one of the worst men in all of Shakespeare is found, and of course when he describes a man as bad, he can really do it. What is Iago like? And what he's like when no one's looking right. is that he's a sour-looking person, and he is riven with jealousy and hatred, and there's no happiness in his life of any kind. And he's just jealous of his boss, and he decides to destroy him and destroy his boss's wife, whom he adores. But he can't have her, and so he will destroy her and Othello. So you see, in other words, if you, if you just think the human being functions in a certain way, and when it functions well that way, like describe Iago and then think of my favorite example of bravery— George Washington at the Battle of Princeton, and everyone who saw him there and what he did there, everyone looked at that and thought, it is a privilege to have beheld such a thing. It's just hard to believe it could even happen. Would you tell the audience who have not heard of it what he did there? Well, what he did, he'd won the Battle of, Tr of, of uh, Trenton by going across the Delaware. It's 1776, and he's getting whacked. 
He took Boston, but then at, at Long Island, the British just completely outmaneuvered him. It was his first attempt to maneuver a big army anywhere, and he was no good at it. And so he runs his tail all the way down New Jersey, and it's winter, and he gets across the river, and he hides. And he's thinking, we can't yet let the first year of the war, the year of the Declaration of Independence, end without winning something. And so he decides to go across the river on a party night when the Hessians will be drunk and surprise them early in the morning and kill them because that's how he thinks he can beat them. He's late when he gets there. They win anyway. At one point, the guy organizing the boat said, we're late, sir, and you said we couldn't win if we didn't, if we didn't get there by dawn. And Washington says, it doesn't matter. We'll be dead in a week anyway if we don't win today. So he wins. But then he learns that Cornwallis, a very able general who managed to lose all the big battles in the war, is coming down with a force, and they're at Princeton. And he can see that his victory, which he can now proclaim for the rest of the winter, is about to be taken away. So he's got to go up and stop them. And when he gets there, the American troops are running. And we have a man named Fitzwilliams, who was his adjutant, who records what he saw. And what he saw was that in this occasion, there are other occasions where Washington behaved differently and equally bravely. On this occasion, Washington walks his horse toward the British, and he doesn't look to the left or the right. And so Fitzwilliam says he doesn't have any way to know that anybody's there with him. And he walks toward the British, and there's a volley. The British fire at him, and he's pointing his sword. And he's shrouded in smoke, and Fitzwilliam covers his head with his cap because he can't bear when the smoke clears to see the dead George Washington. And when the smoke clears instead, neither Washington nor his horse has altered their course in any way. And everybody on the battlefield stared at that. And then the British ran away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you tell that so well. Now, and, and Dr. Grant, I think it would be Aquinas' position that that sequence always and everywhere would be understood because of the natural law to be virtuous and good. That's right. That's exactly right. And so he, the, the reasoning, you think about our inclinations and then you look at our experience. And um, so Dr. Arne mentioned the refashioning of the family uh, that's going on in our day. And Aquinas would have opposed that not out of a sense of tradition, well, on that ground too, but especially because nature shows us that um, human beings are happiest when men and women get together, marry and stay together and raise children together. And uh, he talks about that when he talks about that question. That's You can know that by nature. When we come back, we're going to talk about part four of question 94, whether that natural law is the same in all, because not everyone could do, very few could do what Washington did. We don't even know if anyone else could have done that. Very few can be as bad as Yago, and we'll find out what the natural law says about that. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arne, Professor John Grant. Both are of Hillsdale College. Both love Thomas Aquinas. We're spending a fifth week on Thomas Aquinas. This on his Doctrine of Natural Law, his treatise on natural law, which is contained in the Summa Theologica, which the estimable Dr. Grant is teaching this very semester. We were talking about Washington and Iago in the last, and I went down to the, uh, to the part of question 94 where it is asked whether or not the natural law is the same in all men. And uh, Dr. Grant Aquinas writes, it is therefore evident that as regards the general principles, whether of speculative or practical reason, truth or rectitude is the same for all and is equally known by all. Now, that's simply that's a pretty sweeping statement. And a lot of people would look at Washington and say, 
He's crazy advancing on the bridge uh, on the British at Princeton. Not virtuous. How do you respond to that? Yeah, the general what Aquinas means by that general principles are things. He clarifies this later in uh, questions ninety nine and one hundred of the treatise on law. Um, like the second table of the Decalogue, the the Ten Commandments as they apply to human beings. That's something anybody who thinks about our inclinations clearly can know that it's wrong to covet another's wife, uh, steal from them, to murder them, uh, things like that. The higher virtues are commanded by the natural law, but Aquinas says you can't expect everybody to have those. Uh, Either they can't figure them out or they are unable to act on them in the way somebody like Washington could with his his, uh, courage and his prudence together. Very rare qualities. The very next question, Dr. Larry Arn, whether the law of nature can be abolished from the heart of man. I want to argue that Aquinas is right and the answer is no, but it seems to me that the opposite is triumphing right now. No, it, uh, you know, uh, hypocrisy, they say, is vice-flattering virtue. And so, of course, we carry on constantly about how we're in favor of the good and the moral and the right, and we have to make complicated arguments about things we're doing today, how they are that. And so it's, it's not – Aquinas' real case about the natural law is that the general precepts of them, you know, do the right thing, don't lie, don't cheat on your wife, don't cheat on some, with somebody else's wife, uh, you know, don't, don't honor God, those things, he says – they cannot be wiped out. But now I have to say the obvious thing. He, he actually says, in no wise can it be blotted out. Uh, that is the translation that I'm using from the Dominican Priory. But in fact, the courts of the United States, with regards to the definition of marriage, Professor Grant, have blotted it out. And so he says, no wise can it be blotted out, but it has been blotted out. Well, what can't be blotted out is we have an inclination to procreate and raise children. But reason has to figure out how to make that inclination work well, which if reason's working, Aquinas says, you'll understand that's marriage as it's traditionally been understood. Uh, A man and a woman raising children together, their own children together. But but then is the court in the United States, Dr. Arne, departing from the natural law? And if so, are they not breaking the Constitution, which was designed to be framed, uh, to frame the natural law. Well, you know, the opinion was written by Justice Kennedy, and he, you know, what what he does is he takes one principle and uses that in this context, so he's serving some other good, right, which is equal rights for all. But that doesn't mean the fact that he's done that and the fact that he's an authoritative man with his four others who joined him uh, that doesn't mean that he's right or that that can abide. For example, in the Wall Street Journal today, there's a really good article by Charles Murray. And it says the keys to happiness. And you probably know Charles Murray is, is a statistical social science scientist. At the American Enterprise Institute for the benefit and, of our audience. And he's been figuring out, you know, through the course of his career and through the course of his living, by the way, what makes people happy and do well. And he used to say that he could prove statistically that if you will get married and stay married and get a job and keep it and finish high school, you are extremely unlikely to spend a significant amount of time below the poverty line. He adds to that now, uh, get married earlier, uh, find a spouse who agrees with you ethically, that is about right and wrong, and by the way, whose habits don't annoy you, 
And then he says, get interested in religion. And he announces in this article that his wife is a Quaker and that he started going to services with her and he started reading religion and he finds it's a massive thing and extremely impressive. And he says, my unbelief is being shaken. Ha! (laughs) We'll be right back. Uh, A wrap up on why the natural law can indeed not be blotted out. It has a lot to do with what Dr. Larry Arn just said Charles Murray is is figuring out. You cannot blot out God. You cannot blot out natural law. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. This is the uh, the last part of our weekly conversation about the great works of Western civilization with Dr. Larry Arnum, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College. This week, Professor John Grant joins us. Dr. Grant is an expert on, on Aquinas. And so I want to go to this natural law doctrine one more time for the benefit of people who are just turning in late. Uh, Dr. Grant, it's in the human heart. Uh, Augustine Aquinas points out, said it was there. He points to Aristotle saying it was there. But at the end of this question 94, to which you particularly directed us, he said the natural law can be blotted out from the human heart, either by evil persuasions, just as in speculative matters, errors occur in respect of necessary conclusions or vicious customs, he adds. So both individuals and entire societies can be stripped away from and bent from the natural law. In the secondary precepts, so if the things that are not immediately obvious, that that can happen. Um, that's right. And that if you don't reason properly, that's why reason is so. So our inclinations get of us a start, you might say, but if we don't think clearly about them, or if, if we take one at the exclusion of others, as Dr. Arn just mentioned, uh, take the good idea of equality and misapply it, uh, then you can have ruin in those secondary those secondary precepts, which are very important. Well, this is why I always confound my law students on the first day of class by asking if it was okay if we were to decide to hold the vote and and abolish uh, Catholicism or any other major religion, just simply declare it unlawful. And they struggle with that. And, you know, I have two-thirds of the Congress pass it and three-quarters of the states ratify it, and Catholicism is barred from the United States. And they find trouble with that, Dr. Larry Arnn, and they don't know why. And I think it's because they don't, they've never been taught natural law before. Yeah. In other words, one of the things you need is the reason I thought we should talk about this on the radio is people need to know that there's an argument that vindicates the common sense of the subject. And we were talking about the family. Here's the common sense of the subject. Human babies take a long time to grow up, longer than other kinds of creatures. Our biological processes actually have more influence on us than most most other beings. Our eldest daughter's getting married next summer. That's a really big deal. But, you know, she's 27 or 8 years old. I can't remember how old she is right now. And if she was some other kind of creature, we wouldn't know who she is who she, you anymore, right? Right. And, and so the truth is, you know, she's going to give us a grandchild probably. And then, you know, and that fellow she's marrying, whoever he is. And uh, actually, he's a great guy. And he's the best oh, possible. Okay. i got to say all that, right? And, and, uh, and, and. Then she's going to embark on that thing, and we're going to spoil those kids, and she's going to need her husband, and the children are going to need them both. And that is written in the nature of things, and you can see that. Well, there's an argument, and it's old, that vindicates what your eyes can see. And by the way, these new arguments are self-contradictory. But our, our friends in the gay and lesbian community and Justice Kennedy would say there are 
For example, California, 8,000 same-sex couples with many, many thousands of children who are being raised well and and are prospering and love both of their same-sex parents, and that that's not contrary to the natural law. That the fact that a thing can happen doesn't mean that it is the natural way for it to happen, and that's because, by the way, they they don't produce those children, and so they have to adopt others. But there is obviously the way that millions of children get get raised, and that is their parents undertake the act of charity lasting for decades to raise them. I am curious if Dr. Grant thinks that the study of Aquinas would eventually be outlawed by a truly... Uh, progressive regime, because they really can't accept Aquinas as a truth teller, can they? I think it, it, it could. I think a more likely outcome would be we'll just treat this as a historical curiosity that no serious person could, you know, possibly think this way. Hmm. Uh, that's not a prediction, by the way. That's what it is. Well, now. <laughs> it's very common. Yeah, that's the. It's, oh, if you want to read that, that's fine. But no thinking human being, serious human being, would think that. You're going to learn something about how to live from this because he's uh, that's primitive, outmoded thought, and we've transcended that. Now, you know, I've gone to the seminar at Thomas Aquinas College where they have read the Summa in the Latin and then debate it. It cannot be destroyed because it's not really Aquinas, is it, Doctor Arn? No, he, he, his own his own c- case is that you know, which, uh, Winston Churchill said, you can force nature. Uh, away, but it will return at the gallop. And so these Thomas's claim is that these ways that things are, that they assert themselves. Like, for example, here's a, here's a test. James Madison says that if you don't get the structure of the government right, you will not be able to assemble enough power to protect the nation and have that power not be a danger to the people. Hmm. And so... The, uh, Frank Goodnow and John Dewey and these people, and Woodrow Wilson, these people we've been quoting, they think that we're past all that now, that we live in an age where the government is not going to be a danger to the people. Is that widely believed today by oh, the well, American say, people? Two weeks ago, John Kerry said Vladimir Putin was not acting in the way that we are supposed to act these days. Uh, and of course... That's a repudiation of everything we know from history. Of course he is acting the way that people have acted from the beginning of time. That's it. Uh, Dr. Grant, when your students finish the course and they understand natural law, are they optimists that the rule of right reason will regain footing? I, I Well, I spend a lot of time in the course talking about contemporary politics, which does not leave them feeling very optimistic. But I also try and remind them that this shows you the, the perennial opportunity to recover right reason is there and try and make mention of the great statesmen who help us recover this people like Lincoln, Churchill and Washington who help us recover this in our political life. Dr. Arn, and do you find your students believe that right reason returns at some point in a gallop or is it really kind of hobbled right now? No. Well, remember, it, it, like in our Constitution reader, for example, we go through the authoritative arguments in the three waves, as I put them, of American history. And they get to compare the claims of the Declaration of Independence with these claims of Frank Goodnow, and they get to think that through for themselves. And yeah, put them down together and see which one makes most sense. That's why we're still talking about Thomas Aquinas 800 years later. 
Dr. John Grant, Dr. Larry Aaron from Hillsdale College. Thanks to you both. Hillsdale.edu. Sign up for Imprimus. Get all of the Hillsdale dialogues at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Stay tuned. I'll wrap up this week's program.